Come on. All right. So if you guys don't know me, my name is Pastor Jared. I'm the pastor of our young adults community here at Resurrection Life Church. And tonight is going to be wild. I wanted to give a quick shout out before I started my message. We had eight people from our Access community get baptized on Sunday. Isn't that wild? Come on, guys. Going from death to life, raised to newness of life. So, so cool. So proud of all of you guys. It was so much fun. So much fun. So much fun. So this week or this month, we are in a topic or a series of messages called Real Talk. And we are talking about sex and we're talking about God and how God, what is a biblical perspective, a biblical purpose for sex and for sexuality. And we, the purpose, why we're taking a whole month to focus on this, why we're building a whole conference around this is because every single where we look and every single part of our culture The world is teaching us about sex. Whether we realize it or not, every single day, every scroll on our Instagram, it's it's subliminally, the culture is trying to get our focus onto a purpose of sex that's aside from and outside of God's design, outside of God's purpose. Everyone else is talking about sex. So we, we, we thought as a community, as access leadership, why, why not, why won't we be the ones to speak up? It's about time. It's about time that we speak up, that we reclaim God's biblical purpose and perspective on sex and sexuality. And so last week we began the messages. And if you remember, we had like kind of a centering message about the biblical purpose of sex. We talked about how humanity was made to bear the image of God that we as individuals, we were not made just to fulfill pleasure. Like we weren't made for sex. We were made to bear the image of God. And we gave that funny example of how I look like my mom. Yeah. And I, you know, and I bear her image and bear her likeness, but people can actually see the way that I live my life and they can know who my mom is because of the way I look and because of the way they, way I act. And so also the world should be able to look at us as Christians and be able to say, I know who your God is. You look like him. You act like him. You think like him. They should be able to look at us, look at us that way. And so someone could look at me and see that God is my God. And so we saw that from this place of being made in the image of God, we went back to Genesis. We saw Adam was created. He was created as the first human being, and he was made to express the image of God, and he was being filled up with the love of God, with the love of Jesus, with the love of the Holy Spirit in the garden. But in that place of bearing the image of God, we centered down on the question, why is it not good for man to be alone? Why is it not good? God looked at Adam, who was a correct reflection of his image, and he said, it's not good that he should be alone. And we centered in again. We said that God making Adam in his image, he actually needed to give Adam another person to lay his life down self-sacrificially. He needed to create someone else in the same image that Adam could pour his love out onto, and he created Eve. And from that place, we saw Adam and Eve together. God gave them the beautiful gift of sex so that they could come together as one and then correctly reflect the image of God together. Adam and Eve, Eve was created to be the object of Adam's self-sacrificial love and Eve to return that self-sacrificial love. And so we talked a lot about 
marriage and the oneness because we believe that you know the biblical purpose of sex is a one man and one woman found within the covenant of marriage to correctly reflect to the world a self-sacrificial love that they have never seen before. But before I go any further into tonight's message and what I want to do, I want to make a little disclaimer. We talked a lot last week about marriage and how God created man and women to come together and through sex to pursue oneness that they might self-sacrificially lay down their lives for one another and correctly reflect Christ to the world. But I want to speak to all of us who are single in the room and say that we, just like that married couple, can reflect the image of God as well to the earth, right? And while we might not have a spouse to lay our life down for, we can pursue God in oneness of spirit with him. It says in 2 Corinthians 3.17, it says, He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. 2 Corinthians 6, actually. Who, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. We can pursue oneness of spirit with Christ and receive a deep level of love from him so that we are completely secure and from this place of fullness, from this place of love that we've received from the Father, we can actually pour it out onto the communities that surround us. And when they see us completely whole, when they see us completely fulfilled in our relationship with God, and then us in turn laying our life down for people that we have no business laying our life down for, they're gonna look at us and say, what is going on with you? You, you look like God. There's got to be a God inside of you. And so to all of us, I feel like we centered a lot last week on marriage and the beauty of marriage. And it's good. Like we're talking about sex and that's the context that God created it to flourish in, right? And But to all of us singles, we don't have to wait. We're not in timeout. We're not on the bench until we get married. So then we can actually start reflecting the image of God. Like God's given us the ability right now to reflect his image, to reflect his likeness. And even if we don't get married, like we get to display to the world that there's actually another marriage that's coming. Another marriage. And this marriage is not an earthly marriage between a man and a woman. It's a marriage between Jesus and his church. Jesus is actually coming back one day. And what if there was like a group of single people that actually consecrated, they set themselves apart from the world and they said, you know what, like Jesus is enough and I'm longing for his day and longing for his return. The whole world would look and say, what the heck, bro? You don't want to get married? What the heck are you doing? You want, you're 25, bro. Why aren't you married yet? And you say, I'm longing for a day when Jesus is going to return. And I'm pointing to a different marriage. I'm pointing to that day. Sometimes I get like so wrapped up. Like, do we actually understand sometimes? Like Jesus is literally coming back. Like, not figuratively. It's not like he's going to, like, there's going to be, we're going to see, like, a wind blow wildly, and we're going to be like, mm, I think that was Jesus. <laughs> like, he's going to set his foot down on the Mount of Olives, and every kingdom, every knee is going to bow before him. Every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. And all of a sudden, the one that we have been serving our whole life that we've never seen with our physical eyes, but we knew in our heart that he was real, all of a sudden we're gonna see him face to face. That's a real day that is coming. That's a real day. 
I can tell you, come Lord Jesus. I want that day to come as soon as possible. Come on. All right, so tonight, I kind of felt on my heart to preach a set-up message for the rest of the month, but specifically kind of taking us into this weekend um, with real talk. And so this, this message, I kind of see it as kind of like a red carpet that's being rolled out, right? The red carpet is being rolled out, and I believe that the Spirit is actually this weekend and over the, week, in the next weeks to come, the Spirit is actually going to walk the spirit of freedom is actually going to walk on this red carpet of what's going to be shared tonight. And we're all going to see this spirit and receive from the Holy Spirit a deeper level of freedom than we ever knew was possible. And so this, what I hope to get across, just one main truth that I hope to get across tonight in the runway that that, that spirit of truth is going, to, is going to come on this weekend and in the weeks to come is this. God can and wants to redeem, forgive, and redeem every single part of our sexual history. I'm going to say it one more time. God can and wants to forgive and redeem every single part of our sexual history. Notice, notice the dichotomy there. He can and he wants to. And I think a lot of us, if we're honest, we believe that first part, that he can, right? Like God is powerful, and we know that God's powerful, and we're actually going to see that throughout Scripture, that he can. But sometimes I think we approach God, and especially surrounding the area of sexual brokenness, and when we're trying to receive from him, sometimes we, f- we feel like God's like twisting his arm when he's like, mm, you're coming to me again about that same issue that you're still dealing with? You're coming to me about, oh, I guess I'll pull from my limited reserves of grace and, and give it to you just this one time. But as long as you don't mess up again, because I don't know if I have enough in my store. Like, that's, not, that's not God's heart, right? That's not God's heart. He can, he has the ability, but he actually wants to. And he actually delights in forgiving. Forgiving us is actually one of the joys of his life. I don't have have the verse up here, but it's Micah 7, verse 18. If you want to write it down and look it up later. Micah 7, 18. And it says, toward the, the last half of the verse, it says that God delights in showing mercy. He delights in showing mercy. It fills him up with joy. It fills him up with joy. In thinking and reflecting on this message, I really felt like God reminded me of an analogy I read in a book. Um, And the book is called Gentle and Lowly. It's written by Dane Ortland. And I just really felt like impressed this, this, to communicate this point that it's actually his deepest delight, that he receives a great measure of joy in extending his forgiveness to his people. And I thought this analogy perfectly laid it out. I'm going to read it for us here today. It says, a compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He has had his medical equipment flown in. He has correctly diagnosed the problem, and the antibiotics are prepared and available. 
He is independently wealthy and has no need of any kind of financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, the afflicted refuse. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. And finally, finally, a few brave young men step forward to receive the care being freely provided. And this is the question that that he asks. What does the doctor feel in that moment? Joy. And his joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason that he came. So it is with us. And so it is with Christ. He does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's what he came to heal. It's powerful. But if I'm honest with myself in my own story of sexual addiction and brokenness, that's been the hardest part is actually coming to him. I want to heal on my own terms. I want to fix myself up. I want to, I want to get clean. And I feel bad because, you know, I've, God, I've asked you for forgiveness for this already. Or, Lord, I thought I beat it and I promised you that I'd never struggle again. I promised you that I'd have another lustful thought. I promised that I'd never look at porn again. I promised that I'd never had sex with my girlfriend again. But, Lord, here I am. I can't believe that I did it. I'm so, what, is the, what, what does the doctor say? He says, Come to me. I delight to forgive you. Throw all your excuses aside. My grace is just that good. Would you come to me? When I was 19, I entered into my first relationship, and this just, it just opened up like a whole can of worms for me. And I didn't realize in that moment how much lust and how much perversion was hidden in my heart until I entered into a relationship. I didn't realize it. And as a kid, I thought I was, you know, I thought I was doing pretty good. I had never typed in the words P-O-R-N on a search engine. I'd never like, you know, gone and sounded out. You know, sure, I struggled with lustful thoughts and fantasy all day long. But no, I, I've never typed in those words, so I'm good. I must be a pure kid, right? Little did I know, I had all of this perversion, all of this lust that was hidden up in my heart. And I found myself in a cycle of sexual addiction when I was 19 years old. I was addicted to the emotions that I felt around my girlfriend and pursued those over her, even. I pursued those over relationship with Christ. It was a high that I was constantly after. And I remember time after time after time after time, I would mess up and I'd come back to Jesus and I'd, I'd say, but I'd, God, forgive me. But even in my heart, I was like, oh, it feels so wrong to ask you to forgive me. Because if I'm honest with myself, I'm probably going to slip up in about 20 minutes after I leave this time of prayer with you, right? I felt like I needed to be clean before I came to him and try everything that I needed. But I felt like God spoke to me something really, really powerful in that moment. He said, Jared, do you take a shower before or after you've been dirty? Do you clean yourself up before you go to the shower? 
or you come to the shower dirty and then you let the shower actually make you clean. How many times, Jared, how many times have you reached for that nozzle and that water hasn't flowed on you? Does the number of times that you come back for a shower diminish the water pressure that flows from that shower head? And he was saying to me, Jared, it, it doesn't matter. Come to me and I will make you new every single time. That's just how good my grace is. It's, it's free flowing and it's, I'm never lacking in grace. Like, I don't know if we understand. I'm getting passionate because this is the freedom that God has brought me through. Hallelujah. But this is, God's never lacking. Do we understand the level and the price that Jesus paid for our forgiveness? Do we really understand that? I'm asking us a question. Do we really understand that? He, he was beaten. He was whipped. He was beaten to a pulp. He was spat on. He put a crown of thorns literally through his head. He took whippings, 39 lashes. He, they says in Isaiah that he was beaten beyond the recognizable form of a man. You couldn't even recognize. When you saw him on the cross, you were like, what is that? You didn't ask, who is that? You asked, what is that? He didn't even look like a man. And why? So that you and I could be forgiven. But what I'm doing when I refuse to come to God for grace, what I'm saying to him effectively is I'm saying, God, I don't know if your sacrifice was big enough to actually cover this thing that I'm walking through. God, this sexual addiction, the number of times, Lord, I messed up 19 times. God, I don't know, Lord, if you, and he said, I took 39 lashes, bro. Like, what are you talking about 19 times? Come to me, come to me. This is what Jesus is saying to us tonight. Come to me. God can, and he wants to forgive and redeem every single part of our sexual history every single part. And I want to communicate a message of hope tonight as well. A lot of the ways that we have heard sex and sexuality preached and taught on, a lot of the ways that we've heard it has been from a sense of abstinence, right? Wait, wait, wait. You know, you get the pastor up here and he's like, coming up and he's got his three-point sermon and he's like, all right, everybody, point number one, get your pens out, ready, pens out, ready, write this one down, ready, wait. And then he goes, point number two, and he's like, all right, this one's a real kicker, all right, everybody got your pen, wait. And then point number three, he's just like, sucker punch, really bring it home, he's like, wait, right? That's like the messages that we've, that a lot of us have, have heard, right? And we've given like practical analogies regarding some of these, like the wa- reasons why we should wait. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this analogy, but this is kind of the image that I got for us tonight. It's like, we've, I've heard, I've seen this analogy and I've seen it played out in a bunch of different ways, but it's almost like, you know, th- they'll say like, hey, we're a piece of tape, right? And this is who we are like in Christ. This represents us. But when we have sex with somebody, it's like we're attaching ourselves to their life, Right? And then it's good for a while, we're connected with them for a while, but there's no sense of commitment, and then we break up. But when we break up, there's a little bit of like residue kind of left on us, right? And then we attach ourselves to somebody else, and we have another sexual partner, and then all of a sudden there's no commitment there, and then we break up, right? 
And all the while, we're getting like less and less and less and less sticky. And the analogy goes that, man, when, when the time comes for me to actually stick to the person I want to marry to, I got nothing left. Like, I'm, I'm no longer sticky anymore. And while, while there is, like, some level of truth, right? Like, when you do have sex with somebody, it binds you together, and that's the way God intended it to. It, he intended it to bind you together, spirit, soul, and body. He, he intended for that to happen, right? But I think we have tried for so long to preach a message of abstinence and wait and that we've actually missed the healing and redemption and the power of the cross to make us new. Like, yes, like, we should pursue. The, the first time that we, we should have sex, like, this is the way God intended it was for us in, in the context of marriage between one man and one woman, right? But if that's not us, if we found ourselves broken, maybe we gave away our sexuality to somebody else, we entered into a sexual relationship, maybe it was taken from us. Like, I'm here to communicate that God wants to make you completely new. And that the cross is actually so far-reaching. And God's grace is so far bigger than any mistake that you can make in your life. Hope is never lost. Hope is never lost. Hope is never lost. Come on. Thank you, Jesus. Is this resonating with anybody tonight? Come on. So I want to look primarily, I want to look at two passages of Scripture here. Two passages of Scripture. And I want to look at 1 Samuel 1, verse 11, and the one that has 12, 1 Samuel 12, verse 30 and 31. So that, both of those verses together. So we're going to look at two passages of scripture here. So we're going to look at 1 Samuel 11, verse 1, and then 1 Samuel 12, verse 30 through 31. So that's one chunk of scripture that we're going to look at. And then the next chunk of scripture we're going to look at is 1 Chronicles 20, verse 1 through 3. Okay? So if you got your Bibles, maybe put a bookmark in 1 Samuel 11. Put a bookmark in 1 Samuel 11. And then if you want to flip on over to 1 Chronicles, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 11. That's 2 Samuel 11. If you want to say 2 Samuel 11, go there. And then 1 Chronicles 20, verse 1 through 3. So 2 Samuel 11, 1 Chronicles 20. So we're going to look at these two passages of Scripture. And they're going to be very, very similar. But I want us to look here at these two, okay? So... I was basically going through the Bible, going through scripture, and I was looking, I was attempting to go through the entire Bible in one fell swoop. So this is when I was in high school, and so I was looking at the Bible, and I come to first, second, I come to second Samuel 11, and I'm like, this is great. I'm talking about King David, talking about all his kings, his wars, David and Goliath. I'm like, I can get behind this guy. This is a real page turner. Like, this is really good, right? And then all of a sudden, I get to the kings, and I'm real, reading about certain kings of Israel and all this different stuff. And then all of a sudden, I get to First Chronicles, and I scratch my head a little bit because I'm like, I think I've read this before. And I don't really know why. And then, so I, I read First Chronicles chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. About chapter 3, it gets into a whole list of genealogies. 
You know, and genealogy is like, he begot so-and-so, who begot so-and-so, who begot so-and-so, who begot so-and-so. And I flipped the page just to see what was next, you know, coming up in the future chapters. And the genealogy actually extended for like four chapters long. And I was like, God, are you sure I have to read this book? Like, what is going on here? One, I've already read these stories. I know what's going to happen. Two, I'm like reading about some old dead guys. I don't even know. Like, what's going on? And so I legit, I remember sitting at my desk in my room, and I pulled out my computer, and I literally typed in, why is Chronicles in the Bible? And if you could hear my inflection, like, that's, that's literally why I said it. It was like, why is, Chron- like, why is Chronicles here? Why do I have to suffer through reading all the same stories again? And what I actually found, if you want to pull up that timeline of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then um, the 107 years, and then Chronicles. So what I found was actually like a, a little timeline of Israel's history. And so First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings are basically all about the his, history surrounding Israel and their kings for a number of years, right? And so that whole section was written by a number of people: Gad, Nathan the prophet, and the prophet Samuel. But that was written about 107 years before First and Second Chronicles. So you get this picture that First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. That by the time the last letter of Second Kings was written, there was 107 years until the first letter of First Chronicles was written. So you get this gap. This gap is super, super important in these years. And so I saw that and I was like, hmm, that's interesting. And so now when I was in Chronicles, I was like. The, totally, the Lord just put it on my heart. What if I did like a comparative study, like to see if anything had changed in those 170 years? Like, what, what if, you know, I, I'm going to compare all of these stories just to see if there's any discrepancies between 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. And so that's, I'm going to literally take you guys on that journey that I took as a little high school kid. So we're going to pull up uh, 1 Samuel, or 2, I'm sorry, I keep messing that up. 2 Samuel 11 verse 1, if you want to pull up verse 1, and uh, 1 Chronicles 20, verse 1. So it says, And it happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. 1 Chronicles 20, verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that Joab led out the armed forces and ravaged the country of the people of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. So I'm like, Yahtzee, let's go. I found the stories. Like, this is good. Second Samuel 11, I'm like, this is beautiful. Found it in First Chronicles 22. So I go to chapter 2, or verse 2. Second Samuel 11, verse 2. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. We know the story. This is David and Bathsheba. Second Chron- First Chronicles 20, verse 2. Then David took their king's crown from his head, and found, found it to weigh a talent of gold, and there are precious stones in it, and it was set on David's head. Also, he brought up the spoilers. That, that's different. And I was like, I, I, I've never said, what? God, like, there's a discrepancy in your word. What is happening here? So I go to verse 3. Maybe it'll smooth out in verse 3. That's what I thought. Verse 3 of 2 Samuel 11. Verse 3. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? First Chronicles 20, verse 3. And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron pixes and with axes. And so David did all the cities, people in Ammon. And then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. 
I'm like, this is not getting better. Like, they were so close at the beginning. What is happening here? They are diverging in separate directions. God, your word is like contradicting itself. I've heard about these things happening, Lord. Please let it not be true. You know, like all these things are going through my head, right? So I keep reading in 2 Samuel. And if you go throughout 2 Samuel uh, 11 and even into chapter 12, it goes on to tell the story of David and Bathsheba. David, basically, if you don't know the story, if you're not um, familiar, that's all right. The David calls, he, David sees Bathsheba from the roof of his house and actually calls uh, her to come in and sleep with him, have sex with her. And he does, and he actually gets Bathsheba pregnant. And he, the king of Israel, can't let it be known that he committed adultery with another woman because that would be terrible. He's supposed to be the epitome of perfection as the king. And he's supposed to be the spiritual leader of the entire country. So he can't let it be known. So he tries to get Be uh, Bathsheba's husband to come back and try to cover it up, right? Tries to get Bathsheba's husband to sleep. Doesn't work. And so eventually he actually kills Bathsheba's husband, whose name was Uriah. So David not only commits adultery, and violates this married woman, but also commits murder to cover it up. So I think we can all agree that's a big area of sexual brokenness. Big area. In late verse 12, um, verse 12, Nathan the prophet actually comes and confronts David. David repents, um, but the child that Bathsheba actually was carrying dies in her womb and is never born and is never alive. And so all of that happens between uh, 2 Samuel 11, verse 4, and second, until 2 Samuel 12, verse 23. So I'm reading all of this, and then all of a sudden I get to 2 Samuel 12, verse 30. I get to 2 Samuel 12, verse 30. After all of that has happened, after the whole blow up and everything, 2 Samuel 12, verse 30 to 31 then he took their king's crown from his head, and its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones, and it was set on David's head. And also he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance, and he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. And I'm reading this, and I'm like, I've heard this before. I feel like a little investigation. I feel like Nicolas Cage, and I just like reached my hand in the stone, and I found a secret lever, boom, and then it like opened up over here, and I was like, yeah, like I got it. I was like, Eureka, let's go. And so I was like, oh my gosh, is this like, this sounds a lot, very, very similar to 1 Chronicles 20, 2 through 3. And so let's pull that up, 1 Chronicles 20, verse 2 through 3. So this is 2 Samuel 12, 30, and 1 Chronicles 20, verse 2. So it says, then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold, with it precious stones, and it was set on David's head. Also, he brought up the spoil of the city in great abundance. 1 Chronicles 20, verse 2. Then David took their king's crown from his head, found it to weigh of talent of gold, and there were precious stones in it. And it was set on David's head, and also he brought up the spoil of the city in the great abundance. It's the same. So I go... And one, uh, that's another verse further. Let's go 2 Samuel 12, 31 and 1 Chronicles 20, verse 3. And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes, made them to cross over to the brickworks. You can read the rest. And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks with axes. And so David did to all the cities, right? They're the same. And I, I started asking this question, like, what happened to the story of David and Bathsheba? Like, it's, it's not in there. Like, Chronicles 
it's not recorded in Chronicles at all. It's almost like the whole entire story has just been taken out and then thrown to the side, and then they just take it from verse 1 of 11 all the way down to verse 30 of chapter 12. Like, what happened? What happened? Why is, why is that? And all of a sudden, the Lord highlighted something to me, and he said, check out Psalms 51 and when it was written. And I went to Psalms 51, and you can pull up this other graphic of David's repentance. By the time that 2 Samuel was written, there was a period of years that transpired before 2 Chronicles was written. Remember the 107 years that was in between? And in between those 107 years, David prayed a prayer. Before 2 Samuel was written out, and he, it was recorded, and all of David's sins were in 2 Samuel. All of them were recorded in 2 Samuel. Something happens in those 107 years, and then all of a sudden, it's not recorded 107 years later in, in 1 Chronicles. What happened in between? Psalms 51. You can pull it up. Verse 1 and verse 9. Psalms 51. This is what it says. Verse 1, it says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Verse 9, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. David prayed a prayer. And the God of heaven heard him and honored his request. Second Samuel was written by Samuel the prophet, and it recorded all of his sins. But when he gave that same history over to Israel in First Chronicles, the Lord went, let me just cross all that out. I'll blot all of that out for you. It's not recorded in First Chronicles. Why? Why? Because God can and wants to redeem every single area of our sexual brokenness. He does. So where? What happened? We know the story. How We know the story. David elsewhere in the New Testament, he's actually called a man after God's own heart. Why? God had blotted out, completely forgiven, all of his transgressions, all of his sins. What happened to Bathsheba and the union between David and Bathsheba? Do we realize that David and Bathsheba actually went forward from there to have a son? And his son, that their son's name would be Solomon. And through Solomon, through the lineage of David and Bathsheba, Jesus would be born. God used and took these two broken people who had broken sexuality. He took this man who committed adultery with another man's wife and then killed the other man, killed the other husband. And he took that person and then he took this woman who either agreed or was exploited and he used their union to help usher in the Messiah of the universe, the Savior of the world. Could it be for us? Could it be for you and I with our areas of sexual sin, with our areas of brokenness, 
What if it takes one moment of repentance, walked out in a process of discipleship for us who have areas of sexual brokenness and history and tainted and scars and all of these things? What if it takes, what if God wants to use us to help usher in his kingdom, to help usher in the Messiah to this world and represent him in his kingdom? God can and he wants to redeem every single area of your sexual brokenness. He does. Everybody bow your heads and close your eyes. The first step in finding lasting freedom in this area of sexual sin and sexual brokenness is submitting to Jesus as Lord of your life. Submitting to his lordship. Saying, God, I don't know what's best for my life and I don't want to try to be the boss of my own life any longer. I want you to be the boss of my life. I want you to call the shots. God, I'm done living in this area of brokenness. I'm done living this sin. All it's done is brought me death in my life. If I'm honest in God, I want you to come in and bring me life. Lord, I want you to take this broken individual and make something beautiful out of it. I want you to take my sexual brokenness, everything about me, and I want you to use me to help usher in your kingdom. If that's you today, you're saying, today, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I want to take the first step in the process of walking as an image bearer of Christ. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand on the count of three. Everybody's head bowed, eyes closed. One, two, three. That's you. Would you raise your hand? Say, today's my day. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to be saved from brokenness. I want to find life in him. Amazing. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. So good. Everybody repeat this prayer after me. Say, Jesus, I love you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I believe that you died and rose again, defeating death, defeating sin, and defeating the devil. God, I give you all of my heart and all of my life today. I make you the Lord of my life. Holy Spirit, help me walk this thing out right. I love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, give it up for those people making decisions for Jesus. So good. Love you guys.